0: Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by Pro, with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today's episode is the second and final part of our conversation with Major General William Hickman. General Hickman is a Murray County native who attended Columbia Military Academy. As an ROTC student at Vanderbilt University, upon graduation, he was commissioned into the Army as a second lieutenant in 1983. Over the next three decades, he rose through the ranks, holding various field and staff commands, including commands at the company, battalion, and brigade levels. He served in both the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions, as well as with the Army Rangers. Between 2003 and 2008, General Hickman served three tours in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom, serving in over 20 countries. He joined the Central Command Staff as military assistant to General David Petraeus. He became Commanding General of the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana, Deputy Commander of the U.S. Army in the Middle East, and finally, Deputy Chief of Staff, Strategic Plans and Policy for NATO's Allied Transformation Command. Retiring from the military in 2019 as a Major General, General Hickman is now Senior Advisor at Compass Executives Group, assisting businesses in crisis management, strategic planning, and decision-making. Coaching and Leadership Development, and Supply Chain Management. General Hickman, welcome back to History Sook.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you for the second time.
1: We are also joined in the studio by my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcomb, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. Good morning to you, Barry. Good morning. General Hickman, before we pick up where we left off in our last episode, let's recap a bit. Uh, You grew up here in Columbia. Your parents were influential members of the community. Uh, Let's spend a minute on them if uh, you don't mind. Your father has done much for the Columbia and Middle Tennessee area. He was chairman and CEO for First Farmers and Merchants Bank, was on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank in Atlanta, He's had a successful career and has been equally generous with his success to his community. What's the greatest lesson you learned from your dad?
2: It's it's about all about community service. For my father, so he uh, he obviously worked at the bank, worked hard there, but he also spent a lot of his free time, his nights and and other times, uh, to different organizations as you li- listed several of them from the but from the hospital, the community college, to Boy Scouts, to University of Tennessee, and many other areas, of giving back to the community and building. He's very proud of Murray County, very proud of Middle Tennessee and, and Tennessee as a whole.
1: You credit the Boy Scouts as one of your early great influencers. How many years were you in the Scouts? Uh, well, how far you, did you go?
2: Well, uh, you start when you're 11 uh, with the Boy Scouts, and then uh, you just kind of finish up 17 or 18. But I uh, made Eagle Scout. So after about two and a half, three years, I got to be the Eagle rank and just continued on with scouting while I was still in high school. So uh-huh. we really, it was a great time here. Uh, troop 114 at the First United Methodist Church. It's a wonderful troop.
1: Um, what was your eagle scout project just out of curiosity
2: we worked uh in the community with the uh, park system so it was it wasn't quite as big as it is today where they've had these huge projects so you just basically dedicate time is what you did back then it is it was back in the 70s today it is these projects are huge uh what this or our scouts do for the community so it wasn't quite as big back in there than uh, big a deal as it is today
1: you, you probably haven't had much time but have you been involved with scouts since you were a boy scout
2: I am i uh Back in the uh, when I was back going to graduate school that summer, I came back to Columbia and helped with their troop for the summer. Went, to, went back to Boggsville with them. And now I'm helping with the scouts in, in uh, Rutherford County, but it's still part of the Middle Tennessee Council. As one of the commissioners for one of the troops there, basically volunteering to assist in any way I can.
1: You settled on Vanderbilt University as your school of choice, graduated with a business degree, and as an ROTC student had a four-year commitment to the military. You decided on the infantry as your branch of service in the Army. Why the infantry?
2: Well, you know, let me, uh, one last thing on the community and I uh, get into infantry. If I can, sure. I didn't, you know, talk about my, my, dad, my mother grew up in, uh, Carrie Hickman. I just want to say one thing after all the kids got out, she became the, the form of the grand jury. I mean, if you go in the courthouse today, uh, it was very amazing how they, uh, recognize her service there. There's a plaque in the room is dedicated to her service to the grand jury. So she loved, uh, Murray County and Columbia. So I want to say that, but, uh, but, but uh, yeah, I did go to Vanderbilt, and really I wanted to do something exciting. And, and, and the infantry is about outdoors, it's about leading troops. Uh, when I first joined, it was leading young men, but today it's young men and women can join the infantry and really go out. And And, and infantry is really the uh, one of the branches, I think, the primary branch that leads the way in the Army as far as combat operations and service to the nation. So that's really what I wanted
1: to do. Were you hoping to lead troops in battle?
2: Well, you want to lead – this was back in the 80s when I joined, so you want to lead troops to be ready to go into battle. Uh, I don't think anybody wants battle, but you want to be prepared as you deploy anywhere in the world.
1: You were commissioned into the Army as a second lieutenant uh, in, I think, 1983. You gained experience with uh, uh, the Airborne, uh, 82nd Airborne, I think you mentioned, uh, first, stationed around the United States and into Italy. Uh, held a staff position with the Army Rangers when you were deployed to Haiti during Operation Uphold Democracy, which resulted in a peaceful transfer of power there. Uh, You transferred to the 101st Airborne, where you commanded a combat battalion uh, at the time of the Iraq War. You deployed to Iraq with your command in March of 2003. Remind us, what was the situation like in 2003 when you arrived in country?
2: Well, we were in Kuwait. We went in uh, late February, early March in Kuwait with the 101st did. And so we prepared, we had several weeks to prepare why there were still negotiations going on at the political level when decisions to be made. And then we moved into uh, part of the invasion, the Third Infantry Division and the 101st Airborne Division, where the two divisions, of the Army, sent into from Kuwait into uh, southern Iraq into Baghdad, and then we ended up in Mosul itself for the and ended up being there for a year. So it was really uh, for me exciting, uh, challenging time because most, if not all, of our troops had never been in combat before. I had never been, and so really trying to understand how that was going to work uh, as you lead soldiers into uh, uncertainty.
1: You mentioned uncertainty. You're fighting through a number of cities. Uh, I think you mentioned you're in Baghdad, uh, Najaf, uh, and into Mosul as well. Right. Uh, so you're you're fighting in the cities. Were you prepared for that?
2: We had trained. In fact, our last exercise was in a uh, little small urban area that Fort Campbell has, but it's only about 50 buildings. Now we're going into uh, Najaf Kabbalah, Baghdad, where I have uh, you know uh, urban sprawl? There's a uh, two or three hundred thousand. Some of those cities, Baghdad is probably about four or five million. So yeah, it's, it's huge differences, but the basic tactics we had trained at the small unit you know, level, but how to bring all that together was a challenge.
1: Well, let's let's flesh that out a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, you said it's a city of a hundred thousand or more. Uh, how are you dealing with the civilian population uh, during a fight?
2: Well, in, in the southern Iraq and even in uh, Baghdad, you encourage the civilians, you have loudspeakers on vehicles, uh, the teams that come with you with translators talking, uh, in this case, Arabic, uh, telling the people, you know, stay in your homes, uh, you know, don't interfere. Uh, and then they, they learn that pretty fast. So that then you can focus on where you think the uh, enemy is. It's in this sense, more insurgents. There were thugs, criminal gangs, things like this we were going against.
1: What numbers are we talking about in terms of the enemy's numbers?
2: Well, by when we go to cities, they were, they were bound. Now there were just few left. I mean, 40, 50 type. Uh, thugs that like most of them had gone they, they melted back into the civilian population and they left behind really in Dodge of Carball, they left on these huge caches of weapons and ammunition and mortar rounds and hand grenades all this all this all these things that they, they prepositioned as if they were going to try to uh, resist for long periods of time that we found.
1: You mentioned in the first episode that you thought there were some bad decisions made and that you were put into a fight that maybe you weren't prepared for uh, in talking about Mosul, I think. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, I think the, what's important is the the Army had trained for the initial two or three months very well. I mean, we we're very good at uh, synchronizing combat a- effects across large areas. Uh, so that means integrating the Air Force, the Army together, the Marine Corps working uh, their pieces uh, but when when the initial fighting was over with, now we were, uh, we're now we're in peace enforcement type roles uh, with, which we had not trained for, and how to uh, integrate with the uh, political forces, the, the civilian leadership. Uh, we weren't very familiar with the culture we were getting into and in the uh, except at the most basic level. And, and so those are all lessons learned that uh, the army had to learn very hard, very hard lessons over the first two couple years there.
1: So there's no playbook for that level of occupation
2: no there, there wasn't uh, I think we're much better today uh, we should have been ready but we weren't and so uh, I think we can I think our military is much better prepared today than we were in 2003 as long as we don't lose those lessons learned you know the next generations of officers will come in and others and uncommissioned officers in uh, 20 years from now when they're facing the same, conditions. Hopefully they uh, don't forget those lessons learned. Is
1: that the nature of warfare historically, that you have to learn these lessons simply by doing them? Is there a way to prepare ahead of time for every contingency?
2: Not, not for every contingency, but there are some basic lessons we have to learn. We, uh, The U.S. military learned a lesson uh, through War II, I'm sure before that, how to synchronize combat operations, large formations, with weapon systems we're very good at that we've always been good at that and we've learned those lessons from war to war the other lessons though we're not very as good at remembering is the culture the under the complexity of the environment you're getting into Uh, We learned that lesson uh, the hard way too many times.
1: So you arrived in country in March of 2003. I think by the summer of that same year, you were called up to division headquarters and went to work for General David Petraeus, who was commanding the 101st Airborne Division at that point. General Petraeus is an interesting figure. Uh, He would go on to four-star command and eventually become director of the CIA. Describe him for us. When did you first meet him? What kind of man is he?
2: Well, I first met him uh, when I was still battalion commander. He's a division commander. I was two levels below him uh, in, in 2002. So when he took command and so we, we met a couple of times on the, uh, training years, but not very often. And really when I got up to the division headquarters, uh, it was time for me to move to a new job. Uh, I was the operations officer for the division, about 15,000 soldiers. And, um, he's very driven because things had settled down enough in Mosul that we actually ran, we ran together almost every day for about eight months in Mosul. Uh, he was a very fast runner, very uh, good PT, but he was also very focused. He had, he had his PhD, uh, and uh, his dissertation was on Vietnam. And so a lot of people didn't realize that. He, you talk about lessons learned. He had, he had studied, immersed himself in a lot of the lessons learned out of Vietnam about how to operate with populations. And so uh, he took those lessons learned. Now, he didn't talk about Vietnam when he talked to us, but he talked about how to uh, build rapport and networks of the people is what he did. And so it was very interesting. So he was very intellectual general, but he's, uh, he's also very uh, tactical and operational level proficiency general also in understanding what he wanted to do and, and brought that vision to the division.
1: His ideas on counterinsurgency became sort of the playbook for the US military strategy in Iraq and Afghanistan.
2: Many of the things we did in 2003 and four, uh, the division and some of them, uh, there's a book uh, Tom Ricks wrote on a fiasco which is a very interesting uh, critique of the U.S. military, in 2003 in Iraq. But he also does have a chapter on the 101st where he's a very critical, Tom Ricks is a very critical writer, so he he was critical about the 101st, but he was also pointing out many of the strong points that the division did in Mosul in 2003. Those ideas translated over in 2007 in the search.
1: You mentioned you were operations officer. Uh, at that point in time, was it G three? I think. I, explain. Explain what your duties were.
2: Well, the G three is responsible for uh, overseeing the current operations, what's going on every day, and tracking that within the division. Uh, so operations from uh, all the way from basic patrols all the way to political events, cultural events, and also looking long term plans. What we're going to do maybe not just next week, but uh, two months from now, six months from now, and just within the commander's vision that he gives us. And then we also coordinate with the intelligence officer to uh, to make sure we, their predictions, their uh, tracking of the enemy forces and the uh, and what they think is going to happen, and we marry those two together to figure out what we're going to do in the future.
1: It's fascinating to me. We talked about this last time. So you went from battalion command, yes. so about five hundred troops. Yes, uh-huh. Up to the strategic level of thinking, you have a hand in what's happening on a strategic level at this point in time.
2: Yeah. I mean, in in the big scheme of things, it's tactical operational level from when you got, you know, the whole country because we had our part. But yes, at the division level, it was the strategic level uh, for northern Iraq.
1: Must have been fascinating to have that point of view. It was.
2: I mean, to have the understand the ground, what the what the small units are doing, the, the tactical units are doing, have that understanding and then come up to the next level. And to have to plan the operations to synchronize all that is very interesting. And, and it helps to understand what the, the troops are doing before you start writing plans. So it's very interesting. And that's a normal progression. The Army's been doing that for years. They bring somebody up from that level up to that job.
1: Seems daunting. Yeah. It's a lot of stress.
2: It was. It was. It was long long days and <laughs> nights, but it was fascinating, too, and really enjoyable. We had a great team.
1: How How long did you do that?
2: I did it for a year. Okay. So I started in June 03, and in uh, June 04 is when I left the job. What was next? I went to the war college. Right. Yeah, went to the war college and came back. And I think I missed this last time, but after the war college, I went back to Iraq my second time. And I was the J 3, the operations officer for the training command that trained the Iraqi army, Iraqi police. Uh, so, so is this a
1: shift in strategy at this point as the war progresses now, the American army then, or the coalition forces are starting to train Iraqi forces in order to sort of take on the war effort themselves. Can you you speak to that a little bit? What's happening uh, in in terms of strategy, military strategy?
2: In in 2004, we came home, the 101st came home. Uh, About two months later, General Petraeus was promoted three-star sent back to Iraq uh, for a year and a half to two years and uh, to revamp how we're gonna train the Iraqi army and partner with the Iraqi army and the police. And then after the War College, he called me up and said, do you wanna come work for me? So this is the second time I worked for him as his operations officer for this training command and there and there was large amounts of uh funding that was coming in from the US to train and equip the Iraqi army so they can do more of the security operations
1: what was the iraqi army like at that point or the iraqi police force in the iraqi army how how difficult of a challenge was that and how effective it was, was that it was it uh, was some
2: people compared to trying to build an airplane while in flight i mean how do you put a wing on an airplane while it's actually flying through the air that's what this was like. How do you build an army while it's under contact with the enemy? How do you train an army while it's also being, the insurgents are blowing up that same army, that same police force at night. So it was extremely difficult to uh, vet the right, get the right people there, vet them uh, to get the uh, training done properly, to trust them, to give them the weapons, the ammunition, the training, while the same night they're going out at night and getting uh, shot at and killed by the uh, insurgents. Hmm. So it took many years to, it's difficult to build an army in a Western world under peace conditions. I mean, it's a lot of hard work to do this while you're actually under contact extremely hard.
1: From 2007 to 2008, you returned to Iraq for yet a third tour. Uh, This time you were leading the 2nd Combat Brigade, about 5,000 troops at this point in time uh, during the surge which was a controversial policy of President George W. Bush to increase military presence in Iraq, but to embed that presence right into the strata of civilian life. That sounds like General Petraeus' mindset right there.
2: That is. That's his strategy. We did it in Mosul in 2003. We were out with the people. And so we uh, we had about 3,500 soldiers from Fort Campbell go, and then we joined up with other soldiers from other units. We had about 5,000 in northwest Baghdad. We built 19 security stations. They were there before us and kind of revamped them. And so our troops were living with the Iraqi police, with the Iraqi army in the neighborhoods, providing security to the Iraqi people as, as a
0: partnership.
1: We're going to take our first break and continue this conversation when we come back. We'll be right back on History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by Pro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro. With your host, Tom Price is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. We're continuing our conversation today with General William Hickman, uh, retired Major General from the U.S. Army, uh, and we're talking about his time in the Middle East. From 2007 to 2008, you were commanding the 2nd Combat Brigade uh, in the 101st Airborne. In 2009, uh, you were made a military assistant to General David Petraeus, so another time that you're being called back to duty with him. Describe your relationship with him. Why is it calling you back?
2: Well, this was the uh, fourth time uh, when he was a Central Command Commander in Tampa, Uh, where the headquarters is in deal Air Force Base. I think we just had a good relationship as far as communications, trust, uh, vision, working toward a vision and understanding each other. Uh, And we built that up over time through, as I mentioned earlier, through going out and running a lot of mornings together and doing other exercises and just building a a strong trust between each other. And he knew that I was going to uh, work hard to extend his vision uh, as he communicated that to different groups, from political leaders to our, our younger soldiers.
1: What was the overall strategy? What was your job first of all as his military assistant, and uh, what's the overall strategy uh, at this point in time?
2: Well, uh, and this job started in uh, 2009. That summer, I uh, was the uh, really ran his personal staff. We had myself, we had a, uh, a colonel that ran his initiatives group. We had another colonel that did all. Our, our navy captain did all the uh, legislative work on the Capitol Hill for us for him in the command we also had another colonel that worked the public affairs the media part and then we had many other officers and uh, non-commissioned officers that really worked the ideas for him you know he was vision his guidance and they would put it into writing for him he wrote a lot of his own stuff too but anyway that team was about uh, 20 core members and we had about 40 other core members from security and communications team and we we were were rarely in mcdill air force Base the headquarters we were uh, either in washington dc other parts of the nation traveling through Europe and the Middle East. And we would, he would go out and meet with these senior leaders from presidents of countries to ambassadors to senior military leaders in each of these countries. And then uh, we worked the messaging and uh, working with what the strategy was uh, the U.S. interests were in the region. And Central Command, is responsible for all the Middle East and c- including the uh, Central Asian states also.
1: It's a huge amount of responsibility worldwide. Yes. You were working, as you said, extensively with civilian authorities at various levels to achieve your goals. Uh, describe a little bit how that worked. Who, who were you dealing with? You said from Capitol Hill to presidents and kings. Who who are some of the folks that you had to deal with?
2: Well, the for a, a combatant commander, which he is, there's five of them. The world's divided in five parts, five areas. The U.S. does that. He was responsible for, as I say, the Middle East and Central Asian states. So he worked a lot he would be meetings, a lot of meetings with the, at the White House. Uh, we, we didn't go to the meetings with him, but he would go with the meetings with the uh, National Security Council and others. Uh, and then he also spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill with the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee. So we'd meet with senators individually in small groups, uh, members of the house individually in small groups, and also do his public testimony uh, to the, each committee based on uh, the request of those committee members, whether it be their his yearly update or more specific uh, committee meetings based on specific issues like Iraq or Afghanistan. So we spent a lot of time in Washington doing that. And then he spent a lot of time working with the leaders of the countries, whether it be King of Saudi Arabia, the King of Bahrain, the crown prince of the UAE, senior leaders in Kuwait, uh, President of Yemen. I mean, he went, he met with all these different leaders uh, in Egypt, many leaders in Egypt and Lebanon. I mean, he, he went to every country and we would meet with either the senior political leaders and military leaders of those countries really to, uh, to understand their needs, but also communicate what the military needs were. And really the the national needs are the U.S. national needs for those countries. And he spent a lot of time coordinating that that message, those requirements with the uh, State Department. So it wasn't an independent military action. This is really where the State Department and the U.S. military work hand in hand in these nations. Uh, Under the, really the, the most senior Uh, oversight of the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to that country really is responsible for the message within that country. So it's really interesting to watch how the U.S. military works with the uh, other departments of our nation.
1: Right. And you're right in the midst of that. You're working with these ambassadors on the ground uh, in these countries. You're in Afghanistan. Uh, quite a bit during 2009. Right. Uh, what's going on strategically in, in Afghanistan at this well, point in time?
2: 2009, in de- December 1st, 2009, when President Obama announced the uh, surge into Afghanistan uh, at a speech at West Point. And so uh, we've been part of the planning from the military's point of view for that surge. I mean, this, the staff had the Central Command and McDill Air Force Base.
1: Was the surge a strategy that was recommended by? Your command? Yes,
2: it was. It represented by the commander. General Crystal was the commander in Afghanistan at the time. General Petraeus' the central command, and then up through the uh, Joint Chiefs, all recommended additional forces in Afghanistan at different levels. And so the, president the previous
1: made, surge under the Bush administration was highly controversial. Yes. How, what about this one yeah, they, during they the both, Obama administration? Yes, they both
2: were. So if you go back and read about President Obama's decision, he supported the military's perspective. But there were many members of the uh, from the it was bipartisan. There were uh, political leaders on both sides, clearly his party, but both both uh, sides. So I don't want to make this an issue that did question why we were surging into Afghanistan at the time. But he he made that decision. But he also put a limit on it. He said, uh, we'll surge now. But by the summer of 2011, uh, we'll start drawing that surge back down. He put an end date on the surge. Uh, to give the military an understanding of what resources they had.
1: Uh, so explain the surge in, in terms of your work uh, at this point in time. So you're, uh, again, making these relationships again with uh, y- using resources at the State Department through ambassadors uh, and others to sort of build these relationships with with these various countries, and, and including in Afghanistan. The, I, I, explain that.
2: Well, the bit. surge in Afghanistan was really, uh, if you go back and, as we review it, it was a surge of U.S. forces. The U.S. Le- senior leadership went to NATO and asked for more NATO forces. Uh, and then there was a surge in State Department uh, officials. And so that was the surge. But it was also a surge of ideas of how to—it's it's more than just people. People are good, but you have to have the right ideas to do it. So under General McChrystal at the time's uh, leadership, it was about getting out— similar to Iraq—getting out with the uh, Afghan military and providing security, uh, which is very difficult in Afghanistan uh, to many parts of the country— and then as you do that, build up the Afghan army uh, and the Afghan police to, uh, again, allow them to secure their nation, not the U.S. military, with our allies. And so that was the big idea. The idea was to get out there. And so that much of that happened with the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps surging in with some of our NATO partners also.
1: So you're surging sort of a, across various uh, ideas. Talk for a minute about provincial reconstruction teams and how they work.
2: Well, they, each uh, in Afghanistan... There was a provincial reconstruction team, either led by a U.S. military senior officer or sometimes a State Department. Uh, most of them were U.S. Well, actually, the United Kingdom had one of the uh, provincial uh, reconstruction teams also, and uh, but they also were there were also uh, teams that were uh, had military though and had State Department and other officials on there. So it was a mix between civilian and military, and they were usually stationed inside the uh, capital of that province. So. It, it would know, be like being in Nashville, in a state in the United States. And then they were responsible for engaging the governor of that province, province and the uh, other political leaders and also the civil leaders to improve governments and services to the people of that province. And so they were embedded there. And many of them stayed more than a year. Uh, some of them would stay a year, but some of these senior leaders would stay so they could build a relationship with the provincial leaders, which is very important.
1: It's one of the problems, I think, historically, uh, as units or people – Cycle through and cycle out of a country, having to rebuild those relationships, have been have been problematic. How successful was this strategy?
2: It was probably uh, marginally successful. I mean, it. Uh, I don't have a better way. It was the best plan we had at the time, and I think that uh, it, there were benefits. But to sustain that, I mean, we're all, we're on our 19 years now. To sustain this type of engagement is extremely difficult, and so it really goes back to your a uh, nation's decision making when they want to uh, operate in these limited wars, they're still wars. If you're on the front line, it's a war to you, whether it's limited or not, you're uh, fully engaged. But they're, they're not, uh, they're sometimes wars of choice. They're not wars of national uh, survival. And so they're, they're, they have to be uh, uh, approached differently than, the, than maybe a, a war or two or a civil war the Revolutionary War that we fought in the past.
1: Talk a bit more about a limited war. What, if you don't mind my asking, what is your opinion on where we are today? Uh, and if you don't mind, uh, e- even talk about the the difference in political administrations and how that has an impact on military strategy in the Middle East today.
2: So today, the U.S. military, its international military strategy, operates at the level of a below arm conflict. So it's hard to for people, everybody understand that. Today, we have forces all around the world operating at a level of below armed conflict. Uh, they're providing security. Some of it is a more peaceful environment. Some of it is a more potential for conflict to occur at any moment. Uh, as the U.S. Navy, Air Force, even the Army and the Marine Corps are deployed in different parts of the world. So uh, when you do that, you have to understand the uh, criteria, the, the indicators, the conditions to employ that armed force, realizing that they could start, something could happen at any given time. So, so when you bring it up to uh calm conflict, you take an Afghanistan example. I think the uh, the decisions that were made to go in Afghanistan obviously were sound. The U.S. had just been attacked. We didn't understand. There's no way to predict the next months or years what would occur with our fight with Al-Qaeda. The issue with, we uh, see with Afghanistan after 19 years of conflict is uh, there had to be a better way. Uh, so why, you, in limited war, you have to be limited objectives. You need to identify the enemy very clearly uh, and then the effect you want to have on that enemy or your your opponent. And then you need to bring as many allies as, as important and don't let the mission get larger than the limited objectives were at the beginning. So to, for me, Afghanistan was a war, a, a fight against Al-Qaeda, a transnational terrorist organization. It's not another nation. There are just a bunch of terrorists. They happen to be using Afghanistan and Parts of uh, the tribal areas of Pakistan to operate of, and that's the should have been the focus in Afghanistan, not a 19-year uh, war to uh, rebuild a nation. Nation building is very difficult very expensive. Uh, even when the U.S. military goes and helps in a tsunami in somewhere in off uh, in, the in, in the Pacific, they can do very well, but it's very expensive. Right. Yes. So the same thing with the limited wars; it's extremely expensive.
1: Do you see an end in sight?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, everything's going to end. It's going to end at some point, whether it happens uh, with the current peace treaty. But uh, this is going to end, yes. Uh, So we'll see what happens here in the next uh, several months to a couple of years. It's just amazing. It's taken 19 years.
1: As administrations change, how do you see strategy changing? is there a big difference between a democratic administration and a Republican administration historically in the thirty six years you were in the military, did you see a significant change from one administration or one political party to the next?
2: not not in a whole uh, if you go back if you you look at different levels if you look at the national security strategies, the written documents that're published, each president publishes one they're very they're very similar the overarching goals are very similar protecting American people, American interests around the world uh, and so that has not changed and I, and it's I don't think the, uh, the resource of the military, I mean, they've gone up and down. Don't get me wrong. There's differences between uh, from President Carter to the current administrations with the Democratic and Republican administrations. But overall, the military always gets very close to what we think we need. Every, ma- every commander wants more. But uh, you need to be realistic about what you ask for also. So I don't, th- I don't see an issue with that. Uh, now, that's the written document. Now, the actions are different. Some uh, presidents in the past have been, uh, I think, on both sides. I mean, you look at, the, you know, President Clinton, President Obama, or both President Bushes, President Trump. Uh, they've, 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 they've sometimes they've acted very aggressively. Sometimes they haven't, and they, it's the decision of the president to make that. He has to make that decision as the commander in chief, but also more as a president. You know, I we're going down the road here, but the president wears two hats. The president. The United States is a president. He's a political leader of the nation, of the entire, should be the entire nation. And then he puts on his hat as the commander-in-chief. That's a you know, that's a term we say in the military, but I think civilians use the same term. Commander-in-chief, he's a different, it's a different hat. Now he's working with generals trying to orchestrate a conflict. And that that's the problem I see sometimes is our presidents, they're just like everybody. Through experience, they get better. But how do you put on different hats to understand what you're doing as the same person.
1: It's a, a challenge in a democracy, uh, when, you, especially if you have a commander-in-chief who has no military experience in his background. You, you hope that he's listening to his military commanders and listening to his advisors at the State Department. Um,
2: well, you look at the president. President Eisenhower, uh, I think he, he understood to get us in and out, try to get us out of wars and try to keep us out of wars. But he had also been a very a senior, obviously a very senior member of the military. It led a huge alliance in World War II. Most presidents don't have that opportunity, and I don't think we want that. We want we want presidents who have led, been senior leaders in government, led states, whatever their background is, to beat our nation. Generals as presidents should be very rare, I think. Uh, and, but uh, but with that comes the uh, a lack of experience sometimes in how to lead large military formations around the world.
1: How long were you with uh, General Petraeus in this posting?
2: This last one was from from 2009 to 2011. We were a year here in Central Command, and then when he got the call, he was at the White House. He got the call to go to Afghanistan in uh, late June of 2010. Uh, I was in the Pentagon at the time. He was at the White House. He got a call. He got asked for the president to go. So he called me and said, you want to go to Afghanistan? He said, yes. So we got a plan together, and about uh, 10 days later, he he finished all of his congressional uh, hearings and we stopped at NATO in Brussels at the NATO headquarters en route to Afghanistan. And then around July the 2nd, it's amazing how you remember these dates. We had landed in Afghanistan and we started a year tour there.
1: Why do you remember that date? Because it
2: was, uh, we got there because July the 3rd, they ended up having uh, the 4th of July celebration at the embassy. And July 4th is the day he officially took command in Afghanistan. So it's just kind of how these dates, hmm. and we were running around to Washington, D.C., prepping him to, uh, assisting him. He's prepping himself. He, he's a very capable person, obviously. But we had to meet with a lot of different senators and then because he had to go through the uh, confirmation process.
1: Um, talk about your family at this point in time. Your wife, uh, you're getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan. Where where does she stand at this point in your career as you're deploying again?
2: Well, my family, uh, my wife and my daughter, were you know, living in Tampa. We had a house on MacDill Air Force Base. And so uh, I was in Washington with Joe Petraeus. Our team was. All of us were there. And I called her, called her on the phone. She would seen the news. She watched the news and uh, saw the, the announcement. And I said, hey, I'm, we're going to Afghanistan. And she said she expected that. And this was the uh, third time John Petraeus had called me on the phone. This was a little bit faster than the last two times. And asked me to deploy with him to, uh, to do a job. And so she understood. She, they stayed at McDill for Air Force Base for that year while I was in Afghanistan.
1: Uh, obviously, you have a lot of respect for General Petraeus. What's your wife think of him? Every time he calls, uh, uh, off you go.
2: He, uh, She does, too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh Holly Petraeus is uh they were became good friends with Jim Petraeus' wife. So uh Mamie is uh very she she understood she actually enjoyed the culture of the military. She liked for me to be at home, but she also understood she, she committed a lot of her time to the families, the family uh, uh, networks to assist families while troops were deployed and she was a great she really enjoyed that time.
1: We're gonna take our second break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with General Hickman. We'll be back on History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook sponsored by Pro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook sponsored by Pro, with your host, Tom Price is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we're continuing our conversation with General William Hickman, a Murray County native who's had a stellar career in the United States Army, achieving the rank of Major General. Among his awards and medals, he has the Combat Infantryman Badge, the Expert Infantryman Badge, the Ranger Tab, Master Parachutist, Air Assault, Defense Distinguished Service Medal, Army Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, two of those, three Legions of Merit, four Bronze Stars the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, five Meritorious Service Medals, and the French Gold Medal of National Defense. It's an impressive list. It took a minute. Any of those stand out to you? Any that you're most proud of?
2: Well, I'm most proud of, I guess, I think the Combat Instruments Badge in the sense that it represents, it's not about me. It's about when I was with my unit, uh, either in different uh, deployments of Iraq and Afghanistan. So it re- represents, uh, you're de- you've trained a unit to the highest level and you took it to combat. So that's really the most... I think the best uh, recognition for any instrument is to be able to do that.
1: What are the biggest lessons that you learned while in Afghanistan?
2: Well, Afghanistan was about uh, bringing a very diverse nation, because it is. It it doesn't look like it on the map, but uh, from the deserts in the south, the really high mountains to the north and to the west, and it's a very compartmental nation. So how do you bring those those parts together and try to form a country, which has been trying to be people of... uh, Nations, Afghans are trying to do this. Other powers that have come into Afghanistan many times have tried to do this. It's almost impossible uh, for a foreign nation to do this. this is a, the, the Afghan people have to figure out what kind of nation they
1: want. The Middle East is an incredibly complex place. There's so many groups of people, opposing groups of people, tribes. How does, and any number of nations that have tried to, for lack of a better word, conquer the region. The the Soviets failed in Afghanistan. The United States has been struggling there as well. Thinking about lessons learned, looking back at the time there, would you have done anything different? Would you, if you, if you had the president's ear today... What what would you recommend?
2: Well, when you any nation, but Afghanistan, but it could be other nations. They're very complex and different from ours. You have to really understand the culture, the beliefs, the social structure of those nations, the long term vision of those leaders, uh, and then and realize you're not going to change that. And so, so therefore, when you go in those nations, you need to have very limited objectives. You need to go in with an alliance, and you need to go in with uh, trying to partner with those entities, those nations, those groups, of those nations at least have some semblance of uh, the same values and beliefs that you have about at least about beliefs about humanity, about human rights within, within reason. Every, every culture is different, but there's the basic human rights out there. And so if you can do that, then it's worth doing. But if there are no partners like that in those nations, then it's very difficult. And I would say it's almost impossible. And, and clearly do not um, risk your own basic human rights, your own values, uh, for any operation. Uh, I think our nation always has to maintain our values, no matter what we do. And if you can't do that, then it's a mission not worth doing.
1: Hmm. Um, what came after Afghanistan?
2: Well, Afghanistan, really quickly, I just uh, I got promoted to one star when I made uh, general. And I moved up to the 101st here at Fort Campbell. And I was a deputy commander of the division for a little over a year and really trained. We really focused on training uh, uh, combat forces to deploy anywhere in the world. So that was exciting. Uh, then I went to J- the Joint Ranch Training Center in uh, Fort, Fort Polk, Louisiana, and that was a full-time job of just training at the tactical level, our units to deploy. And that was really exciting, though. And a lot of lessons learned there from, about leadership.
1: If, if I can ask one question here, it's a little bit off the beaten path, but it sort of comes to mind. Fort Polk, Louisiana, named after Leonidas Polk, yes, another Murray yes, Uh spent time here. How do you feel about the recent thought process of changing names of military bases Named after former Confederate?
2: Well, I think generals. it's time to uh, examine it uh, and, you know, way forward on how to change the names. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's a problem at all. The, uh, I think there's a lot of this was politics around the uh, 40s, where these bases were uh, built uh, out of land taken from local people. And uh, politicians decided to name the bases after uh, these posts after Confederate generals. Uh, for many reasons. I'm not going to question it. I wasn't there in 1940. But I think it's time now to, uh, as we work through a process, I don't think I'll do it today. I think that I'll do it though in the coming short time period as they work through a and listen to people, listen to different ideas and get it right. So we're not talking about this you know, two or three years from now.
1: Um, what came after Fort Polk? Uh,
2: to, that's when I got promoted to two-star to Major General. I moved to Kuwait uh, for a little over two years. I come. I was the deputy commander, but I was the forward commander for the U.S. Army, for not just in Kuwait, but uh, about nine or ten different countries we had troops uh, operating in. So I based out of Kuwait, but would work with our soldiers in many different uh, areas and worked with uh, training our partner nations our, uh, in the Middle East. And, we, and the biggest thing, I guess, is we support the Army as a, a very good at logistics and uh, for projection of combat power. So our headquarters at Kuwait helped assisted the forces in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, Syria and Afghanistan uh, projecting combat power into those na- uh, those fights.
1: Hmm. About how many troops are you in charge of at that point in time?
2: We had about uh, only, we had about 15,000. We had about a uh, little 5,000 Kuwait and they're they're spread out in different other countries uh, that work for us directly for the command I was in. And then of course we had uh, in a separate command, but in Iraq and, and Syria and Afghanistan, are much larger than that.
1: So once again, you're having to build relationships yes. uh, again. So those lessons that you learned with General Petraeus earlier in your career, you're really putting to use at this point. Yeah. Almost uh, every week I was position.
2: traveling, uh, not just Kuwait, but Qatar, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and many other nations, and meeting with my counterparts, the, uh, their equivalent are their two and three star, four star generals, and we talked about partnership and working together, uh, primarily on the military side, but also with many of those nations uh, would go to the U.S. embassy, and uh, coordinate our efforts with uh, the U.S. with the State Department representatives there. Also,
1: your last job was with NATO Allied Transformation yeah. Command uh, out of Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, what was your position there?
2: I worked uh, strategic plans and policy. So most people don't understand that there is a NATO command in the United States. Uh, it's, it's commanded by a French four-star Air Force General. And so there are some Americans there, but there's about 20 other nations from NATO there also. And so we looked, we have a transformation command. We looked out when I was there to 2035 and beyond and looked at the, uh, I was, my team worked for strategy, plans and policies for the future for NATO. And then we also had another team that worked combat developments, you know, the technology that NATO needed in the future, but also the doctrine and leader development. So it wasn't just all about uh, equipment, but we looked to the future, tried to prepare, so Navy wouldn't be surprised. We were the military component that did that.
1: It was interesting. very interesting. I bet. Yeah. So uh, can you give us an example? What What are you thinking in that command? What were you thinking? You know, 10, 10 years, twenty years out? What? How did How did you prepare?
2: Well, we wrote uh, two or three documents. So we had my team that worked for me wrote the strategic foresight analysis. So if you go on your, uh, if, you, if you go on a, Google and, and write in NATO strategic foresight analysis today. It will come up. It's an unclassified huh. document. And it really lays out the, uh, the future and looks at the, uh, not just the threats to NATO, not military, but it also looks at economic, political, social, environment, the climate, those type things. And really, the big idea is the confluence of these trends coming together in the same time and place is where likely conflict or crisis will occur. So, if you have Northern Africa, if you have poor governments, poor economic conditions, you have a drought, you have uh, other climate control issues, you have a social issue. If all that happens at the same time and place, there's a good chance you're going to have a crisis. And a crisis in Northern Africa is going to affect the security of Southern Europe. And if you you bring all and so you can't you can't predict the future, but you can forecast the future. And so you're looking for things. And so we did a lot of that. We also worked on the NATO military strategy. The assumptions that went into that strategy we did a lot of work on that and nato just published a new military strategy not too long ago
1: hmm. that's so fascinating
2: the biggest thing in nato is about uh, patience you learn patience because you're working with 29 nations and each 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 nation has one vote and it only takes one no vote to stop something so you're really working with different nations and you are working about influence listening to people and trying to influence them and so it's, it's a great assignment for me to learn that
1: huh. how long uh, did you do that
2: That was a two-year assignment from uh, summer 17 to 2019. Summer 2019,
1: and then you retired.
2: And then I retired. Why? I I think it was time. It was time for uh, to come home and be with family. And my wife and I wanted to come back, so we're actually living in Murfreesboro. She's from Murfreesboro, but uh, it's close enough to Columbia for me to get over here every week and visit my father and and visit friends and just be back home.
1: Um, It was a choice. Uh, your next level up would have been three stars. Uh, yeah. Would, would that have been a possibility? Had, had it you was probably a,
2: a very low possibility. Everybody's at some point, everybody in the military, you make it to where you're going to go. And so, uh, I just talking to, uh, peers and my seniors, I was, it was just a time to go. I mean, I may, may or may not could have got another job, but I think it was just, you know, sometimes you sometimes just know 36 years, it's time to sure. do something
1: else. Sure. Yeah. We're in the midst of a transition again in terms of the Middle East strategy. President Trump is reducing the number of troops in the region to less than 5,000 by election time in November. He has called U.S. involvement in the Middle East, quote, the single biggest mistake in the history of our country, unquote. What is your assessment of his assessment? Do you agree with what he said?
2: Okay, so I'm not going to question that. He was talking about downsizing or, or reducing forces in Afghanistan, and so I... I applaud any president, I know President Obama worked on this also, and President Trump, uh, to develop a way forward in Afghanistan. I mean, we cannot stay there for another 20 years. I mean, we could. We'd just be doing the same thing we are today, 20 years from now. Something has to change. You have to make bold moves. And so his work to uh, build a, his work in the the military leaders and State Department to develop a way forward to provide a chance for peace in Afghanistan has to be uh, tried. And so to do that, you can draw down U.S. forces at the same time, build up Afghan forces. So I think that's a, a role worth trying. And so uh, to support that. The, uh, the big thing about the rest of the Middle East uh, in the world, I mean, after 1945, the U.S. developed this world order of uh, rules-based international law. And we became the, as the one nation that had an economy a large economy, a strong military, and a strong political will could uh, build this world order, not for just us, though, for all of our allies. And so to maintain that, though, is a very expensive. It's very It takes a strong commitment. And so, uh, again, I, I will say, I will go back to what administrations administration is right. And if you do, I've read the, recently, again, the National Security Strategy, it talks about working with our allies, working with our partner nations to promote uh, American is- interest around the world. And so I, I'm a full, firm believer that this world order, this rules-based international society that we built with our allies has to be maintained. It doesn't mean it doesn't change, though. We need to change as the world changes, as we become more globalized, uh, and the world's going to change. But there is a, it's important to be able to uh, control that change so that we can pr- uh, promote our, the U.S., the American people, but also our allies and our partner nations.
1: Looking back on your 36-year career, what would you have done differently?
2: I think uh, I would have tried to, earlier in my career, network more outside the military, if that makes sense, to prepare myself for the future, working with the State Department and others. You In the military, you become very focused at the junior level. I'm on my specific job, leading my soldiers, and uh, doing exactly what I, what my mission is. Uh, but today, we realize even the most uh, junior officers and our senior and non-commissioned officers are expected to work with international organizations, you know, the Red Cross or other organizations, the United Nations, others, and you're not gonna have the luxury just focusing on your military task. Your military task requires a diversity, of diverse diverse team to accomplish the task, accomplish the mission. And so I think we're doing better promoting that. We did not do that when I first came in.
1: How has your transition to civilian life been and how are you putting your years of experience and expertise to work? in the civilian life. Yeah.
2: When I, when I came back uh, last fall, really until the uh, early winter, until COVID-19 hit, I, I spent a lot of time just meeting different people and uh, the middle of Tennessee business leaders and others, and, and uh, just, just talking about the future. And so uh, I joined a couple of executive groups because it is a small group of uh, senior business leaders that uh, really focus on uh, businesses, you know, assisting businesses with their strategy, their, their marketing plans, whatever it is, leader development. And so i really enjoyed doing that. And uh, and we'll see how it works out from there. But uh, And then become involved in the community. We talked about Boy Scouts earlier, being on the executive board for the, uh, for the Boy Scouts and doing some other things in the, the local community. So I'm really enjoying doing that and becoming involved as much as possible. And hopefully more as we come out of COVID-19. Sort of a theme
1: happens. that I'm seeing with your life. From the time you're a kid in the Boy Scouts – through now in the job that you have, it's building relationships.
2: That's, that's what it is. I think everybody, I mean, you know, as you asked my father, that's what he did. But I think all the business leaders and community leaders do that in every community. It's about building relationships, building trust and caring about the future and, and really community service, selfless service.
1: Uh, do you have any connections with the military at this point? Or will you? It not, seems like you have a vast amount of experience yeah. that still could be useful yeah. uh, in in that realm.
2: Not not uh, formal, no. But uh, you work with different organizations and things. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so we'll see how it works out. Uh, I want to. I, have, I haven't become involved in the VFW yet, but some things like that I want to do in the future here. Once we get, once people start meeting again, things like that. So it'd be more through retiree, the veterans groups, uh, not the active military.
1: Would you consider writing a book about your life? Well, we're.
2: I'm, you know, as you asked me before we started here, I'm writing these small articles for the Columbia paper, and our, our priest James Bennett allowed me to do that. So, I'm going to practice writing small articles, and then I might uh, not about my life, though I want to write about leadership and uh, service and about our nation. And so, it's it is amazing. Well, we have a lot of problems. Don't get me wrong, we've had a lot of problems for many, many years. But, uh, you know, I think the the strength of the nation. People complain about the founders of our nation today. Uh, all men and women are flawed. Everybody is. And there, our founders have many flaws. But collectively as a group, when they came together and they put their ideas on paper, when they talk about equality uh, for all men, for all men, they talk about today as men and all men and women are, are equal. They talk about liberty, pursuit of happiness. These, these concepts are for all people. And so together, the ideas they brought for our nation are very strong. And so I hope our nation, we focus on the ideas of the Declaration, the ideas of our Constitution, but make sure those ideas for, for all people uh, in our nation, and we'll have a, we'll have a, our nation will continue to get stronger.
1: I appreciate you, uh, General Hickman, and all that you've done for the country. You're an amazingly humble man. I hope you write your memoir someday. Your story is worth telling. There are a lot of lessons to be learned through your experience. Thank you for your service. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Tom. We end the show with this quote, candidly. He's extraordinary. There's nothing about Bill that is about self-aggrandizement. He goes about accomplishing the mission at hand, always putting the team first and giving credit to others. He has this extraordinary quiet confidence and remains incredibly cool under enormous pressure. Those are the words of General David Petraeus when asked to describe our guest, General William Hickman. Thank you for listening to History's Hook. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County for their support. On behalf of my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, thank you for listening. Join us next week again on another edition of History's Hook.
0: Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for A Journey Through Time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by Surf Pro of Murray and Giles County. Surf Pro, faster to any disaster.